I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by Fiona Harvey, a leading environmental journalist who's going to discuss the coming crunch climate talks in Glasgow with us. Amid wildfires and melting glaciers, there's much less debate than there used to be about whether climate change is happening. But there's anything other than the consensus about whether these talks in Glasgow are going to do anything much about it. Having covered 14 of the last 16 similar climate talks, Fiona is the perfect person to read the tea leaves for us. And she's got an interesting theory that she's written about in prospects, which is that an awful lot tends to come down to the host nation's leader. And for better or worse, that means Boris Johnson. So Fiona, welcome. And uh, before we get onto the Johnsonian theory, this is the biggest event, I think you say, on British soil diplomatically since the Second World War. You've been to a lot of these things, most people haven't. Um, what is a so-called COP talks, and uh, what goes on there? Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, COP stands for Conference of the Parties, and it refers to the UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the treaty that was signed in 1992 uh, that binds all countries uh, to try and avoid uh, dangerous climate change, and that means reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So we've been meeting, countries have been meeting uh, for really the last three decades to try and sort out how they will reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Meanwhile, greenhouse gas emissions have continued to rise throughout that time, which means that we are now in a very serious situation because if we had started to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, back then in 92 when we uh, first made an effort, Um, this would be a very different situation now. We wouldn't be facing a a panic or a disaster. We would have been able to reduce emissions gradually uh, over the course of about a century uh, and been okay. But the problem is because we've kept on uh, increasing emissions pretty much every year uh, since then, we now face a perilous situation where we have already raised global temperatures by between 1.1 and 1.2 degrees Celsius uh, around the world. 
And we now know, the science is very clear, that if we allow temperatures to rise to 1.5 degrees or beyond, uh, then we will face some very serious consequences in terms of extreme weather. So really, we've been talking uh, for a long time and not doing enough. I see. So um, like most of these, they, you know, they could be characterised as talking shops, maybe better that they happen than that they don't. And yet you say in your piece that, um, you know, there's been, you know, many disappointments, but a few um, triumphs. In your experience at these summits, have people decided what they're going to do in advance? Or do you think what happens at Glasgow itself will really matter? There is a real chemistry when countries get together. I mean, these things are are dreadful in many ways. You know, they're slow and cumbersome and quite often they don't produce much and they're full of, you know, men in suits meeting in little rooms uh, discussing the placement of a comma or a semicolon uh, in a a piece of text. Um, You know, they're, they're dreadful affairs in many ways, but they are also majestic because this is one of the few forums still remaining to us in which every country in the world gets together and in which the smallest of the, uh, the, the most vulnerable, the poorest developing country has as much say in this process as the richest one. So it's a real coming together of the whole world um, and of civil society uh, and of scientists and, and of other parties. So. It really is a, a, an extraordinary occasion. And when people do meet in that way, uh, strange things can happen. Uh, bad things can happen. We've seen cops where, you know, uh, there were falling outs and discord and recriminations. But we have also seen, as we saw, for instance, in Paris in 2015, we've seen countries coming together in a spirit of goodwill uh, and progress uh, and really achieving something. So. In a sense, you can't really tell what it's going to be like until you get there. Okay, so it does matter and things can be different at these different events. You talk in particular um, about the contrast between um, the Copenhagen summit, I think in 2009, early days of Obama, I think, and people were quite chipper that that might go well, but it ended up going very wrong. And then the one in Paris, which proved a bit of a quiet triumph is that characterization right and what would you put it down to the difference between the two if it is yes and partly it comes down to uh, preparation what countries are uh, able to come forward with you know each of these cops um it's not just they don't just come out of nowhere you know um the host country will have been preparing for uh, a cop uh, at least a year and two years usually sometimes you know even longer, really, in advance. Um, And what happens is that the host country does a a huge amount of of diplomacy uh, beforehand, uh, you know, visiting all of the other big countries and small countries, uh, taking soundings uh, all around the world, uh, you know, inching forward on, on what a deal could look like and so on. So what we've seen uh, at previous COPs that went really well, like, like the Paris uh, COP in 2015, um, we saw a huge amount of work go into that beforehand. But then we also saw at the COP itself, uh, we saw the host nation there 
take a real control of proceedings because this is an unwieldy process. This is getting 196 or seven countries together uh, to agree on one long document. Um, but that document involves huge amounts of complexity because it, you know, when people come to these COPs, when countries come, they're talking about their whole economies here because reducing greenhouse gas emissions involves the whole of the economy, everything from energy generation to transport to farming and so on. Um, so you're asking every country to come with a plan uh, that you know is their whole future. Um, so it's a really unwieldy thing. Um, and that preparation is immense and keeping hold of the process while you're there is immense. Because if you can imagine 197 countries all arguing about their entire future, you know, things can get quite quite complex and quite heated. And if you don't keep control of that process, then you get a situation like we did in Copenhagen in 2009, where you get all these leaders in a room, but instead of making progress, it all starts to fall apart. So those are the challenges. It's not just uh, a difficult thing to do in the first place, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's not just difficult to get 197 countries together uh, to agree on something like that. It's also just, just the sheer uh, scale of what we're talking about here, you know, because this does go into so much detail. So it's a really hard thing to pull off, really, and it requires uh, a huge amount of commitment. It requires successful corps require a hundred percent commitment uh, from the host uh, country and from uh, all the main countries that are there. And really, that's what we need to see. Okay, and so I think you say President Hollande and his team ahead of twenty fifteen were banging heads together a long time in advance, and the Prime Minister of Denmark in two thousand and nine, whose name I won't. Pretend I can remember, um, but maybe you can. Um, Rasmussen uh, was uh, Rasmussen was, um, uh, you know, a little bit um, less focused than he might yeah. have been. The, the French, the, the French actually had a great uh, idea that they called it three hundred and sixty degree diplomacy, which meant that they had the entire French government. Uh, and all of the French Foreign Service, so every ambassador in every country uh, and so on, plus, you know, French businesses and uh, every sort of big French institution were all focused on this for at least 18 months in advance. So this 360 degree diplomacy really worked. OK, so let's now kind of come to Boris Johnson. This situation's crying out for a honest and maybe, uh, you know, broker who's across the brief, as it were. Now, it's quite hard to read Boris Johnson on climate, isn't it? Because, he, you know, like, like with anything else, he's, he, he's, he's tossed off all kinds of columns in the past saying it's a bit of a hoax. But at the same time, he now seems to think it's, a, it's an important thing to grip and this could be a great diplomatic triumph. Before we get to the question of his preparedness, let's just ask you this, Fiona. Right now, having watched him on this stuff, do you think he cares about it? It's difficult to tell. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that anyone is an expert on what Boris Johnson cares about. Um, to all intents and purposes, though, he's, he's, he has nailed his colours to the, to the mast on this. You know, he went to the UN General Assembly 
uh, and made a big speech about it. Uh, he's been meeting world leaders and so on. So he has said quite explicitly that whatever he may have said in the past, now he is a firm uh, convert to the cause of climate change, sees that it's a, an enormous issue. It's one on which he wants the UK to lead. And to be fair to Boris Johnson, he has made some uh, great commitments and targets he has uh, put the UK's uh, target out there on cutting carbon emissions. That's probably arguably the most stringent target in the world. Um, but where there are question marks are over how the UK will meet that target. Does the UK have a good plan to meet that target? And does Boris Johnson himself have the application to drive that forward? That's a good word to use, application, isn't it? And um, I suspect by the time um, people are listening to this, um, Boris Johnson will be back from holiday in, I think, southern Spain. Is it Marbella or something? Um, but, uh, like, obviously there's some concern maybe about him a week or two in advance taking time off. Although maybe you could say everyone needs a holiday and he's making lots of important calls from the villa out there. What do you make of that? It's quite an extraordinary time to have a holiday, just as you're about to play host to the biggest climate change meeting there's ever been. I mean, what we're talking about here, there's an awful lot at stake here, because we need to stay within 1.5 degrees. Uh, that's what scientists are telling us. Um, at the moment, the commitments that we have from the various countries around the world would take us well over two degrees. That might not sound like a big difference. You might not notice that uh, if you were standing in a room at those different temperatures. But to the climate system, those differences are huge. They mean the difference between uh, some countries being swept away, uh, low-lying areas being inundated, coral reefs being bleached, billions of people going without water, um, large swathes of agricultural land being rendered useless, a massive increase in heat waves, making some areas unlivable. That's the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees. And that's the gap that needs to be closed at Glasgow. And we only have a few weeks. You know, Boris Johnson only has a few weeks between his holiday and Glasgow to sort that out, that enormous gap. Um, so it's pretty brave to take a holiday at this point. Blimey. Um, uh, I remember your essay closes with a phrase about how maybe the voice that really counts at this summit won't be Boris Johnson's. It could be Elizabeth II. She's reported um, uh, just now to be really irritated by the lack of um, progress on the summit worldwide. I mean, are you beginning to fear that that conclusion that her voice might count for Boris Johnson's um, looks even um, wiser than when you wrote it? Well, it's it's extraordinary. It's, um, the Queen, I don't think, meant to make that intervention. She was overheard uh, on a on a live microphone, I think. So it, it sounds like it was accidental. But it's great that she's taking such an interest. Um, and of course, you know, the royal family does take an interest in this. We have Prince Charles, who's been an environmental advocate for more than 50 years. Uh, we've got uh, Prince William as well, uh, has taken a strong stance on conservation and so on. So we do have a history of commitment there from the royal family. Um, but uh, as you've mentioned, Boris Johnson's own commitment has perhaps been less solid in the past. Uh, he's telling us that he's very committed now, but we do need to see that action from him. And it really is only Boris Johnson 
who can be in a room and, and talk to these people. You know, the, the Queen is a, is a figurehead and, you know, it's great that, that we get uh, some input from her and she has great convening power. She, has, she commands huge respect around the world and that's very important. And I'm sure that that is, uh, you know, a draw to leaders to, to come to Glasgow and to be cooperative. Um, however, really, it's the heads of government Wow. Uh, meeting who are going to make progress here um, and it's got to be one government saying to another this is what we can do this is how far we can go and Boris Johnson's got to be there saying come on you can go a bit further come on you can do a bit more and in a way you know he's he's a great person to do that because you know we all know what he's like he's very boosterish and optimistic mm. uh, you know it, he's quite charming so, you know, if he could be in a room with these leaders and, and try and cajole them and, you know, push them into going a bit further than perhaps they were prepared to, then that would be a really good thing. But it could be that it's a bit late for that. Yeah. And, and I mean, especially with this kind of thing that comes right the way through your piece is this kind of doubleness of Boris Johnson on this stuff. So we've got these kind of it's all sunspots don't worry about it telegraph columns like now you know five or ten years in the past but then we've got his new wife who's genuinely seems to really care about it and his family like the royal family do care about it seemingly Stanley Johnson and so on we get some great speeches some great targets but then a sort of series of decisions on everything from coal mines to like air passenger duty that don't really look like they're backing up the target so it's a bit like um nailing jelly or something isn't it like trying to work out um like how much he's going to concentrate how much he's going to care when the when the um uh, summit finally arrives yeah the track record of boris johnson's government on the climate has been pretty lacking they scrapped the home insulation scheme the green homes grant uh that hasn't helped. Uh, they're investing in new airports and massive new roads and so on. They haven't done enough on electric vehicle charging, even though uh, you know they have a, an electric vehicle target. Um, they're, the most extraordinary things, though, are to be talking about a new coal mine, uh, which they still are, um, licensing new oil and gas fields in the North Sea, which is quite an extraordinary thing, given that a report by the International Energy Agency, the Global Energy Watchdog, that a report by them that was commissioned by the UK government said earlier this year that all new exploration for new fossil fuel resources had to stop this year if we were to stay within 1.5. So for the UK to go and license new oil and gas fuels is pretty extraordinary. They do say that they have a climate test that these new licenses must pass. I mean, really, you know, the, the way that looks to other nations is that the UK is saying one thing, doing another. And then the other thing that the UK is doing is cutting overseas development aid to the poorest countries. Now, poor countries were promised back in Copenhagen in 2009 that they would be receiving $100 billion a year uh, to help them to cut greenhouse gas emissions and to cope with the impacts of extreme weather. They'd be receiving $100 billion a year by 2020. That target has been missed. And if Boris Johnson wants to get poor countries on board at Glasgow, he has to show 
uh, that that target will be met in the near future. So for the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, to start cutting overseas development aid at a time when poor countries are saying, come on, you need to help us with climate finance, is just an extraordinary thing to do. It's a, it has left people gasping. Um, so really, it doesn't look like we're seeing a coherent government here. You know, I talked about the French doing 360-degree diplomacy. Um, yeah. At the moment, the only member of the UK cabinet who seems to be doing anything useful on the climate is Alok Sharma, uh, the cabinet minister who's in charge of this, who's going around visiting countries. He's doing, by all accounts, uh, a fantastic job, but he doesn't have the support of the whole cabinet. Right, OK. So so a mixed picture where you really want that three... 60 uh, degree um, approach. Can I just finally ask you on the process? I mean, I want to ask you about a couple of other countries as well, but on the process, you can imagine Boris Johnson, even more than David Cameron, a kind of essay crisis prime minister. And, you know, from his own selfish point of view, um, like a guy who did get a couple of deals, you know, by going for brinkmanship over Brexit and threatening to walk away from the whole thing. Do you think he'll be tempted to um, just by that experience, try a rerun um, in Glasgow. And if, if he were, how would, how would that play out? Brinkmanship won't work in Glasgow um, because there are countries who have shown themselves to be very willing to wreck these talks in the past. Uh, and they will be very willing to come to Glasgow and, and wreck them there as well. Um, and just having a, a deadline, pushing this to the brink, um, is no way of stopping them because... You know, they're, they're, they're quite happy to go home without a deal. Yeah. Um, and because this process works by consensus, you need to get everyone on board. Um, you can't just leave some countries out in the cold. So, you know, in a sense, with the climate, we have a deadline for this problem. We know that the longer we keep pouring greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, uh, the nearer we come to a brink. So in that sense, there is a very real brink. But mm. in terms of the talks themselves, these talks have carried on for 30 years. So there is no deadline. You know, every deadline that we've ever had has been bust through. So you can't push countries to a brink in these talks. It's not like a situation with Brexit or the EU and so on. Um, okay. So it, it's if, if that is the strategy that is being looked at in number 10, I'm afraid it's not going to work. Okay, well, let's hope they're not they're not going for that. That's a very powerful argument. We know we've got, I think you list Saudi Arabia, uh, possibly Australia, Brazil, countries that just really aren't particularly interested in playing, as it were. Um, but probably we have seen many times at this at these talks. We have seen many times at these talks that there are wreckers, that there are uh, countries that are, are willing to come along and either um, overtly cause problems and try to stymie agreement or covertly uh, to work behind the scenes in delaying or obfuscating or bringing up technicalities. And there's an awful lot of technicality to get through these talks. There's a thing called the Paris Rulebook because in 2015, uh, everybody signed the Paris Treaty and it's a big long document. And it's got, as well as these headline targets, 1.5 degrees and two degrees, there's pages and pages 
of dense text uh, involving all kinds of issues that they need to be sorted out. In the past six years, we've been talking uh, about, you know, Paris and how to implement Paris. There are still issues hanging over from the Paris Agreement, technical issues like how carbon markets should work, uh, issues about how countries should be made to account for their emissions. And the thing is that we need to get agreement on these things as well uh, at the talks in order to have success uh, at COP26. And so that needs a great deal of uh, really close application. And countries we have seen in the past, countries use uh, those technicalities to prevent uh, an outcome, an agreed outcome, uh, and to stymie progress. Okay, so that is starting to sound quite frightening. You've got a lot of people who want to push the talks down a rabbit hole and a lot of rabbit holes available. Um, But um, probably, um, notwithstanding what you've said about Boris Johnson as the host, the biggest players, just because they're the biggest economies, I imagine, are still um, China and the United States. Um, And so could you just close with a a word on each of those? You know, America, I imagine its positions moved a long way from Trump, but is it now willing to do more than it was under Obama and President Xi, who we worry about in all kinds of other uh, context, how serious or not, because I imagine it will come down to him in an increasingly kind of um, dictatorial China, um, uh, how willing or not do you think he is to move? Well, the United States is very firmly behind progress on climate action, and they have made bolder targets than we've ever seen them make before, and they have committed huge government resources And they have, a bit like uh, the French with their 360-degree diplomacy, Joe Biden has made it clear that this is a whole government issue for him, that every member of his cabinet must have a a plan to contribute towards the overall climate goal. Um, And he has sent John Kerry, a very experienced statesman, of course, with huge respect around the world. John Kerry has been tirelessly going round the world uh, all year Uh, trying to get support from other countries for this. The US has put up more cash as well. Arguably, they could still put up more. It's quite difficult for them to do that to get through Congress. But the US is putting forward more uh, climate finance to help reach that 100 billion goal. So they are doing something there. And, you know, I spoke to John Kerry the other day and he was incredibly upbeat, actually, um, uh, about this. Uh, He was really pushing. He's determined to push right up to the last moment uh, on this and beyond, because something that he said, he doesn't see Glasgow as the end. It's the starting line, in fact. So, you know, whatever we get uh, at Glasgow, it will be good, he hopes. It won't be quite enough. So he will keep pushing after Glasgow to get to enough. And he's, he's going to put in place mechanisms uh, at Glasgow, he hopes, for countries to keep coming together so that, so that you know, this doesn't all finish uh, in, uh, you know, in, in, in a, 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 a room in Scotland. Um, you know, this will carry on well beyond that. Uh, and we will see, hopefully, more commitments coming forward. And we've seen some progress already. They've got a, an agreement on methane, for instance, which is a powerful greenhouse gas. Uh, and that needs to be Levels of that need to be brought down. And the US and the EU are leading a push to do that. So we're seeing that there are 
ways of carrying on this effort beyond Glasgow, and that's really important. Xi Jinping, we're not quite sure what's going on there. We're not sure whether he will come. There have been reports that uh, he's ruled out coming. That's not definite yet. Um, he, if he doesn't come, some people will be very disappointed, but it's not a complete disaster as long as he gives instructions uh, to his representatives in Glasgow. Um, then we could still see progress from China there. Um, and of course, you know, the, the progress with China will not give up after Glasgow either. China does see that it has profound problems from climate change. We've seen the uh, flooding that they experienced this summer. And they also have problems with um, other environmental issues like air pollution, a lot of which comes from their burning of coal. So they have a lot of reasons to stop burning coal uh, and to move into uh, a new energy paradigm where they rely on renewable energy. At the moment, that's quite difficult because of high energy prices around the world. So there's pressure on China to actually burn more coal in the short term. But I think there's an awful lot of people uh, high up in the Chinese government who realize that in the medium and longer term, China needs to go for renewable energy and to give up coal. Um, and I think there's a, what we've got to see now is whether those voices prevail in Glasgow and indeed beyond. And, um, you know, just to wrap it all up, I mean, um, you're saying they're both in different ways, I think, about China and America, uh, that the, um, you know, the penny's beginning to, to drop, that in the end, there's not a sensible strategy of, of uh, being in denial um, about this. But I know that kind of reporting on these kind of things is always an emotional roller coaster, and sometimes it's an emotional roller coaster at the talks themselves um so i'll ask you this in the spirit of you know just um like you'll have this view today it could be a different view tomorrow but right now do you feel like we're going to get something decent out of it or are you really pulling your hair out i really hope that something good can come together in these final weeks and moments what is really important is that this is about people this isn't just about some men in suits in an air-conditioned conference hall. This is actually about the people outside. This is about people around the world. And what we're seeing is a huge realisation around the world um, and an enthusiasm for climate action and a warning. You know, there are young people around the world who are very worried about their future and their voices need to be heard. And I think that that's a force really that, that has grown stronger in recent years. We saw it a bit uh, at Paris, but we've been seeing it more and more strongly ever since, just the force of people. And that's uh, what needs to happen at Glasgow. We need to listen to people. Fantastic. Well, on that semi-hopeful note, um, uh, I think we should draw stumps. Fiona, thank you very much indeed for um, taking the time to talk to us. Um, anyone listening, please do look up Fiona's excellent essay. Um, I think it's called One Man, One Planet, or One Planet, One Man, um, uh, on the Prospect um, uh, website. Um, our producer is Sarah Collins. Um, and to all of you at home, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and review, which will 
help to get us known round and about the place. But that's it for now. Thank you very much. Stay safe and good luck to everyone who's listening, who's in any way involved in the build-up to those crucial talks. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.